Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, McDonald's Corporation mastermind, Ray Kroc. Now let's continue with our story about Ray Kroc. As the 60s progressed, McDonald's continued with explosive growth, adding 100 new stores annually, a franchise now becoming a prized commodity that sold itself. The product's identity as the preeminent fast food hamburger chain now embedded with the public. But this growth also necessitated a corporate reorganization. The Realty Corporation, headed by Harry Sonneborn, was combined into the rest of the company. Because of his financial acumen, Sonneborn was named CEO. However, that was merely a title, and Kroc, as the founder, chairman, and owner of 52% of the stock of the company, considered himself the actual boss, the CEO title, insignificant. The reorg was also a step in the lengthy process of implementing McDonald's first initial public offering of stock, Kroc allowing this to go forward, recognizing the ability of his and other key executives' ability to access considerable wealth. Unfortunately, because McDonald's had zero presence in the New York area, many blue-chip firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were indifferent to getting involved with the syndicate headed up by Payne Weber to handle this transaction. Because no other fast food company had ever gone public, major financial institutions mostly passed on the deal or took a very minor position. Surprisingly, the same mom-and-pop customers who made up the firm's franchise base now became the grassroots retail investors who oversubscribed the stock and turned it into the hottest IPO of 1965, the price more than doubling from its initial $22.50 to $49 in a matter of weeks, and eventually getting the company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. While Kroc and others made literal millions, the skyrocketing price also increased the value of the stock that they retained. Interestingly enough, Kroc did not attend the formal and prestigious luncheon eventually given by the exchange to celebrate the listing. He begged off, claiming he was on a cruise with his wife, but more than likely, this was an indication of his disdain for the Wall Street business community and its elitist mentality that had ignored his IPO and underpriced the stock. The chain enjoyed another breakthrough when it appeared as a sponsor of the Macy's 1965 Thanksgiving Day Parade and its ads featuring Ronald McDonald, played by a slimmer replacement for Willard Scott, were the first fast food ads on network television. Another advertising decision paid off when the company agreed to buy time on a postseason pro football game billed as the AFL-NFL Championship game. This unprecedented matchup of the two leagues was an unknown quantity with poor ticket sales in the cavernous L.A. Coliseum, but it proved a rating smash with 41% of the audience tuning in to what eventually became known as the Super Bowl. 
McDonald's also quickly becoming a major advertising participant in NFL telecasts. The corporation ultimately proposed a 1% annual contribution based on sales by all franchisees into a cooperative national advertising fund. The fund was also controlled by a consortium of franchisees, not the corporation. This ensured a large amount of money devoted to network television advertising, one of the reasons for McDonald's extremely high television commercial profile. This arrangement, with an increasing percentage of contribution, still exists today, maintaining McDonald's national advertising prominence. The chain's 1960s success belied an internal struggle that was inevitable based on the corporate philosophies of Kroc and Harry Sonneborn. The struggle effectively divided the company's executive team into two camps, those loyal to Sonneborn and those loyal to Kroc. Because corporate headquarters in Illinois was out of Kroc's personal control, Sonneborn was able to change the company culture to a tight-fisted, financially conservative operation that moved at a much more deliberate pace. Ray Kroc, already frustrated by what he considered a failure to continue the company's momentum, finally precipitated a confrontation over raising the cost of a burger from 15 to 19 cents. Sonneborn brought this matter to the board, which by then had at least a few appointees loyal to him. But Kroc still held a majority of the company's stock, and Sonneborn, not in the best of health, in any case finally realized that it was probably time to leave. He resigned in early 1967, Kroc handing over control of daily operations to Fred Turner, the company's eventual CEO and chairman. Sonneborn was so convinced that Kroc was a loose cannon and that he would destroy the company, the former CEO immediately sold all of his stock, 11% of the company's entire equity, for $12 million. Merely by retaining this asset, Sonneborn would have eventually become a billionaire. Instead, he retired to his Mobile, Alabama estate and disappeared from the American corporate landscape refusing to discuss his tenure at McDonald's, eventually becoming a non-person within the company, with Kroc eventually claiming that he was fired. Ray Kroc was also about to get embroiled in another more personal upheaval. His former fiancée, Joan Smith, was stuck in Rapid City, South Dakota, still with her husband, Raleigh, in a place she referred to as Wretched City. Whatever career she might have envisioned was stunted by a basic McDonald tenant. Only men were permitted as employees, and even franchisees' wives were limited to back-of-the-house functions like bookkeeping or inventory. Although money wasn't an issue with Raleigh Smith, granted two more franchise locations in another garden spot, Winnipeg, Manitoba, when an invitation arrived in the mail to attend an operator's meeting on Coronado Island near San Diego, Joan Smith sent it back with a yes that Ray Kroc was to be the keynote speaker might have had something to do with this. Even before his speech, Kroc invited Smith and his wife to an intimate dinner party where Kroc sat next to Joan, Raleigh seated out of their proximity. Afterwards, drink in hand, Kroc invited some of this group to his suite, sat down at a piano, and began belting out songs. It wasn't long before Joan was sitting next to him there as well, joining in on a duet. Raleigh Smith bailed from the scene quietly, but it was 4 a.m. before an angry Smith summoned his wife back to their room with a phone call. Hungover, Kroc delivered his speech the next day, but by then Raleigh, Joan, and Joan's mother, who was attempting to keep an eye on her daughter, were gone. Upon her return to Wretched City, Joan quickly made her intentions clear. 
Ray Kroc resorted to typical behavior, having his attorney explain to his current wife, Jane, that he wanted a divorce. She could keep their house, the $3 million in cash in their bank account, and as long as she was agreeable, her relatives could keep their McDonald's franchises. This revelation was presented to Kroc's wife only days before they were set to cruise around the world in celebration of their fifth wedding anniversary. Once again, Joan and Ray relocated to Vegas to establish residency. This time, the divorce went through. Having vacated his Beverly Hills home, Ray headed to his Santa Inez ranch, stopping in the county courthouse on the way to pick up a marriage license. That Ray Kroc could be hard to live with was evidenced by an incident that occurred only two years into the marriage. Despite being showered with plenty of material possessions, including a 72-foot, 600000 1970s yacht and new houses in Florida and Chicago, in addition to the ranch, Kroc's heavy drinking also combined with Joan's propensity for alcohol for some stormy interaction. This got so bad that in November of 1971, when Kroc left town on business, he was greeted at the airport upon his return with a court summons, divorce filing, and a restraining order preventing him from even entering the couple's Chicago Lakeshore Drive apartment. The filing detailed not only verbal but physical abuse. While Kroc was banished to a nearby hotel, he also got involved with a legal situation involving his only biological child from his first wife, Ethel. Ethel passed away in 1965, and in her divorce from Kroc in 1961, she stipulated that Kroc leave one-third of his estate to their daughter, Marilyn. Because both Kroc and McDonald's weren't worth much at the time, he agreed, but by the early 70s, that situation had changed. Unfortunately, Marilyn, an aspiring singer in her youth, was now in her 40s and financially struggling. Never close to her father, especially after the divorce, she offered to sign off on any inheritance if Kroc would help her out while he was still alive. She was motivated by her poor health, brought about by alcohol abuse, and a trust fund spinning off $1,000 a week was quickly established, as well as the purchase of a condo. The arrangement didn't last long, Marilyn dying of cirrhosis of the liver in September of 1973. By then, Joan Kroc had mysteriously reconciled with the McDonald's chairman. This reconciliation probably came with a realization that both individuals needed some healthier and more productive outlets. Once he delegated the operation of McDonald's to Fred Turner, Ray Kroc became as much of a media personality and company spokesman as opposed to a serious hands-on administrator, something he never really enjoyed anyway. He no longer had to worry much about business in any case. With several huge conglomerates diving into the fast food business, thinking that emulating McDonald's success would be simple, companies like General Foods jumped on the bandwagon by acquiring the fast-growing Burger Chef chain. Some corporate missteps brought the chain's expansion to a halt and precipitated a 1971 $75 million write-off. And By the mid-70s, the company exited the business by selling the remnants of Burger Chef to Hardee's. Pillsbury acquired Burger King, a fast-growing McDonald's competitor, in 1967. But unlike the competition, Pillsbury decided to radically slow down expansion, a strategy that permanently solidified McDonald's as the industry leader, eventually having three times the number of outlets as Burger King. Ralston Purina suffered a similar fate, acquiring the San Diego-based company Jack in the Box in an attempt to convert this regional operation 
into a nationwide McDonald's competitor. Fifteen years later, they threw in the towel, selling the company back to management, the chain reverting back to a regional West Coast entity. By comparison, McDonald's not only continued to aggressively expand, they also began the practice of buying out selective franchisees who were eager to cash out sizable equity, frequently numbering over 40 stores owned by a single entity. Adding a more expensive item to the menu with the Big Mac, the chain was also successfully able to increase revenue, the new double-deck burger selling for twice as much as a traditional hamburger. By the mid-70s, McDonald's became the largest provider of meals in the United States, even exceeding such entities as the U.S. Army. In 1973, a golden opportunity presented itself to Kroc that for him was the perfect outlet. Based on his Midwestern middle-class Chicago roots, Kroc loved baseball and the Chicago Cubs, and once his net worth became considerable, he made several inquiries into actually buying the team. The longtime owners, the Wrigley family, were not interested in selling. But in San Diego, the owner of baseball's Padres, C. Arnholt Smith, was battling his own bank's failure, IRS demands for back taxes, and fraud and embezzlement allegations. He quickly sold off the Padres to a group intent on moving the team to Washington, D.C., but when the city of San Diego sued to block the deal, Smith couldn't afford to wait. Ray Kroc emerged as a civic hero, quickly ponying up $12 million for the team. Despite three straight drubbings at the hands of the Dodgers by a combined score of 25-2 to to open the 1974 season, almost 40,000 excited fans showed up for the Padre home opener. The Padres quickly doused the excitement, trailing the Houston Astros 6-0 after only two innings. Late in the game, San Diego now trailing 9-2, Kroc became so frustrated that he made his way to the press box, drink in hand, and demanded to speak to the crowd via the public address system. Later, the PA announcer, after quickly introducing Kroc, would say that there wasn't much he could do. It was Kroc's team. A stunned crowd suddenly heard its owner berating his Padres. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I suffer with you, unquote. It was at that moment that an individual motivated by the recent streaking phenomenon decided to add a touch of surrealism by running naked onto the field. Croc, whose corporate experience had instilled a veritable mania for uniformity, screamed, Get that streaker off of the field! Throw him in jail! He then continued, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that the Dodgers drew 31,000 for their opener, and we've drawn 39,000 for ours. The bad news is that this is the most stupid ball playing I've ever seen. The crowd responded with an enthusiastic roar. The players not so much. Eventual Hall of Famer and Padre first baseman Willie McCovey spoke for the team when he commented, I wish Mr. Kroc hadn't done that. I've never heard anything like that in my 19 years in baseball. None of us likes being called stupid. We're pros and we're doing the best we can. His words will ring in the players' ears for a long time. Even worse, Astros player rep Dennis Menke protested the players' union and the league. Both the union and the league president Bowie Kuhn demanded a public apology, and Kroc was appropriately contrite, with comments that included, I used a bad choice of words and I'm sorry. I was bitterly disappointed and embarrassed before almost 40,000 people. 
I should have said the team wasn't playing good ball and have urged the fans to stick with us. We'll get better. In fact, I shouldn't have gone on the public address microphone at all. Strangely, the incident seemed to generate greater enthusiasm for the Padres, who would draw more than a million fans in 1974, for them an unprecedented attendance. It also impacted his relationship with his wife in ways that were both fundamental and subtle. Rather than some figurehead position on the company board or starting a small business, Joan Kroc became heavily involved in philanthropic and medical research-related issues, getting involved in the fledgling Ray Kroc Foundation. Her stature in both her marriage and the foundation was underlined by her opposition to an initial intent of the foundation to buy the naming rights to Dartmouth Medical School with a $20 million donation. Unfortunately, this would have completely depleted the assets of the foundation, and a much more modest $1 million donation was eventually made. Even this amount to an Ivy League institution was surprising. Ray Kroc, a high school dropout, had only disdained for higher education, once stating that the world was filled with too many baccalaureates and too few butchers. But the financier who helped Kroc and McDonald's get their company saving 1960 $1.5 million loan was a Dartmouth alum, and he invited Kroc to speak in front of the school's prestigious Amos Tuck Business School. The McDonald's chairman gradually warmed to the idea of delivering a presentation in such esteemed surroundings, returning on several occasions. The school, thinking it had a live one, especially because Kroc had no alma mater of his own, pulled out all of the stops. They granted him an honorary doctorate during a Dartmouth commencement and even invited his protege and successor, Fred Turner, to speak at the B-School as well. Eventually, a formal proposal was forthcoming to the foundation, outlining several potential gifts, including the med school naming rights. Instead, the medical school received $1 million in stock to endow the Ray and Joan Kroc Medical Fund. After meeting with several medical school faculty, Joan stipulated that she wanted the school to update its curriculum concerning researching and treating a condition that was of great personal importance, alcoholism. In the 70s, substance abuse was still considered a moral failing, usually evidenced by severe incapacitation or among street derelict winos. That someone as wealthy, prominent, and hardworking as Ray Kroc could be designated as such was unthinkable. But those who dealt with Kroc on a personal basis, especially his wives and family, would have observed someone whose mentality and human interactions were greatly affected by his abuse of alcohol. Kroc himself laughed off any such introspection, using the then ubiquitous characterization of himself as a social drinker. But his predilection was so obvious that even institutions like Dartmouth were sure to have his favorite brand of bourbon, early times, readily available. Kroc was such a serious drinker that he was known to fire people for drinking Manhattans, a cocktail he considered effeminate, although frequently he would reconsider, especially if he couldn't remember ordering the termination. Another of his rationalizations was that no matter how hungover he was, he always was able to promptly show up for work. Kroc's behavior was most likely the root cause of his initial separation from his third wife, and it was an ongoing issue in their marriage. Perhaps his refusal to acknowledge a problem and seek treatment, an explanation for his willingness to accede to many of her other financial and foundational demands. In 1979, the situation came to a head when Kroc suffered a serious stroke. 
He was told by doctors that if he returned to his typical intake of alcohol, he would be dead in a matter of months, Joan adding that she would move out as well. Ray Kroc did enter an alcohol rehabilitation facility, but for the next few years, he lacked the vitality and perseverance of earlier days. He already had relinquished the operation of the Padres over a $100,000 fine for tampering in 1979 when he adamantly told a reporter that he would aggressively pursue all-stars Joe Morgan and Greg Nettles as free agents when their contracts expired. Perhaps not understanding the arcane rules of baseball negotiation and management, Kroc, already frustrated with his inability to transform the Padres into a winner, wrote a check and blustered, baseball can go to hell. He then designated his son, Ballard Smith, the husband of Kroc's stepdaughter, Via Joan, as the new CEO. 1984 was a momentous year for McDonald's in several ways. On January 14th, after a lengthy hospitalization following another stroke, Ray Kroc passed away at age 81. Although he still spent time every working day in his San Diego office, he had essentially stepped away from the corporation that was administered by Fred Turner with a traditional American corporate framework. In a strange twist, Kroc's San Diego Padres, mediocre during Kroc's lifetime, suddenly emerged to win the National League pennant before losing in the World Series to the Detroit Tigers. For the entire season, the team wore Kroc's initials on their uniforms, and Joan Kroc was highly visible during the run to the series. Sadly, it was a bittersweet year for both Kroc's widow and the San Diego region when McDonald's, now a national institution, got caught up in a newer American phenomenon. On July 18, 1984, a deeply troubled unemployed welder named James Huberty entered a San Isidro, California McDonald's. He was armed with a semi-automatic pistol, a 12-gauge shotgun, an Uzi submachine gun, and several hundred rounds of ammunition. The location was crowded with approximately 45 customers as well as numerous employees. For an hour and 15 minutes, Uberty used all three weapons, eventually killing 23 people and injuring 19 more until a San Diego police SWAT team sniper shot him to death. Nearly 40 years later, this is still the worst mass shooting in California history. The incident devastated the community and stunned the McDonald's organization, no corporation having any kind of PR crisis management strategy to handle such an occurrence. Joan Kroc quickly donated $100,000, McDonald's corporate $1 million, to a civic fund that handled the funerals, hospitalization, and ongoing health care of the mostly lower middle-class victims. The restaurant signage was quietly removed in the middle of the night, the building demolished, and the land donated to the city of San Isidro. Today, it is part of a college campus. After this bizarre and completely ineluctable episode, McDonald's was held blameless in both the court of public opinion and the civil courts when several victims attempted to sue. But the shooting was an omen that the company's years of unabated expansion, prosperity, and golden public image might be threatened by new attitudes and negative reactions to the profound changes that McDonald's brought about in American business, culture, and nutrition. Initially, a selling point of McDonald's was a uniform experience throughout its chain, an identical meal, 
in familiar surroundings. But this concept became a mantra not only for the massive fast food industry, but the rest of retail America as well, and transformed the landscape of a once diverse and beautiful country into a generic hellscape of cookie-cutter urban sprawl, a process known literally as McDonaldization. The impact on American food consumption, especially by children and lower-income families, helped increase obesity levels to some of the highest in the world. Americans now eat 50 pounds of potatoes annually, with 30 of those pounds French fries consumed in fast-food restaurants, coincidentally the McDonald's product with the highest profit margin. Workers in the new low-wage menial or assembly line labor environment engage in repetitive routine tasks that require no skill, little training, and can be easily replaced. McDonald's employees are among the lowest paid workers in the U.S., wages frequently dictated by the minimum wage and as low as $7.25 an hour, with a national average of about $10 an hour. As McDonald's expansion exploded internationally, the chain was frequently perceived, especially in Western Europe, as an invasion of the worst aspects of American culture. Whether it was an awareness of these attitudes, a tremendous guilt over the acquisition of huge wealth generated at great societal cost, a cathartic response to years dealing with an overbearing, cantankerous reactionary, or maybe even just a determination to make a positive difference in the world— Upon inheriting her husband's considerable fortune and sole control of his foundation, Joan Crock quickly set about using this inheritance in ways she deemed to be constructive. 1984 was an election year, and although Ray Crock had little use for politicians, considering them to be just another annoying bureaucratic barrier, he donated to conservative Republicans, especially Richard Nixon, to ensure that the federal minimum wage would not be increased. Joan Crock in August of 1984 announced that she would donate $1 million to the Democratic Party, the biggest single contribution ever. She continued in a veritable orgy of philanthropy to just about every socially aware or civic-minded cause one might think of, ranging from the San Diego Zoo, nuclear disarmament, world peace, the University of Notre Dame, AIDS research, the Salvation Army, and many more. She even tried to give the San Diego Padres to the city of San Diego before Major League Baseball politely but firmly nixed the idea. Although she came to enjoy the team and the fans, she eventually did sell the Padres in 1990 for six times what her husband paid for the team. And she frequently made anonymity a condition of her donations, insisting that if the donation became public, she would cancel the check. The McDonald's Corporation also perpetually tried to push back on hostility over a product that was environmentally destructive and unhealthy, especially for kids. The Ronald McDonald House served to give lodging to parents and their children who require medical treatment for life-threatening issues. There are over 7,000 of these charitable locations nationwide. As far back as the late 60s, understanding that black Americans were and would continue to be an essential market for their products, McDonald's opened the first black-owned franchise in the city of Chicago on December 21, 1968. Of the 13,000 McDonald's in the U.S. today, over 1,500 are black-owned. The chain has also established scholarship funds, sponsored sports teams on a local basis, and even provided basic health and dental care via mobile in underserved communities. 
Once one of the biggest generators of styrofoam, single-use containers, gradually and grudgingly, McDonald's began to try and substitute more eco-friendly materials. But, love it or hate it, McDonald's today has over 40,000 outlets in over 118 countries, serving 69 million people daily. After many years of very visible philanthropy, Joan Crock began to step out of the limelight, finding that with each gift or charity event, she was besieged by countless requests and pleas from thousands of determined individuals and organizations. She never stopped giving money away. She just became much more spontaneous and anonymous, not wishing to spend her time fending off the public and frequently inspired by some news report of a particularly dreadful event. She also spent much of the late 90s working with the San Diego chapter of the Salvation Army to create a community center, a kind of athletic and fitness facility, library, auditorium, outdoor swimming pool, and even an ice rink all rolled into one. In 2002, $87 million later, this 12-acre, 132,000-square-foot facility became a reality, the Salvation Army Croc Center. Less than a year later, Joan Kroc was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer. Within months, on October 12, 2003, she died in her Rancho Santa Fe mansion, having spent her days deciding exactly what she would do with her $3 billion estate. Unlike most extremely wealthy people, especially her former husband, she was not at all tempted to establish a permanent gigantic foundation as much a manifestation of ego and perpetual legacy. Very early in his interactions with the McDonald brothers, typically upset over some franchisee who had changed some aspect of his franchise, Ray Kroc angrily and specifically described how such individuals would be dealt with in the future. We have found out that we cannot trust some people who are nonconformists. We will make conformists out of them in a hurry. The organization cannot trust the individual. The individual must trust the organization. Ray Kroc built an empire on the fundamental concept of rigid conformity, a business that eventually generated billions. In her will, Joan Kroc left $1.5 billion to the Salvation Army. NPR, a gift that probably would have especially enraged Ray, got $220 million, $60 million for the Ronald McDonald houses, and so on including dozens of her favorite charities or worthy causes, until every cent and even her home, art, and jewels were gone. The final and ultimate act of a nonconformist. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Ray Kroc. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books McDonald's Behind the Arches by John F. Love, Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser, and Ray and Joan by Lisa Napoli. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige. And also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.